We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 3, if you'll open your Bibles there. 2 Samuel chapter 3, title of the message today is, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. Comes from the great theologian Mick Jagger, right? And you all know the refrain, right? I can't get no satisfaction, but I try and I try and I try and I try. I can't get no satisfaction. I can't carry a tune in a bucket, but I can't get no satisfaction, right? And that right there, it's the most accurate depiction of the human heart. If there ever was one, that's it, right? The human heart just cannot get satisfied. Ultimately, apart from the Lord, everything else leaves our heart wanting. Money doesn't bring us satisfaction. Fame doesn't bring us satisfaction. Sex doesn't bring us satisfaction. Relationships don't bring us satisfaction. Career doesn't bring us satisfaction. But we try and we try and we try and we try, right? Well, today we're going to see this truth played out in the lives of three men. We're going to see it played out in David's life. We're going to see it played out in Abner's life. And we're going to see it played out in Joab's life. Let's jump right into it. 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. David, at long last, at this point, has come to the throne in Hebron. He's gone through 10 years of trial. Samuel showed up to his house when he was a little boy, anointed him to be the future king of Israel. God, in his sovereign wisdom, prescribed for David that he should go through a time of trial and a time of testing. That even though God had called him to be the king, he still needed that that season of seasoning. And so he went through trial and persecution and hardship, mostly at the hands of King Saul, who was very jealous of David. And going through all of this time of trial and testing, David reached a time in his life when he began to weary. And you know what that is like. When you walk by faith, everything in you is wired to want to walk by sight. We're physical beings, we live in a physical world, and when you walk by faith, there is that trial of temptation that wants to gravitate towards what you can see, what you can touch, what you can handle, what you can engineer. And so David, he took the bait, man. He, at a certain point in this trial and testing, he got off course, he went down a road, he went down a path where he began to trust in his flesh, and he decided, you know what, if I stay here, I'm going to die, so I'm going to run to Philistine territory, and I'm going to settle down there, go right and make myself at home with the enemy. And that's exactly what he did. And he asked for and received the city of Ziklag. He made it his home there in enemy territory. We do that much the same thing when we begin to walk by flesh. The Bible says the way it seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And what happens when we walk by the sight and we begin to walk according to the lusts of our flesh is that we begin ourselves to settle down in enemy territory. And this is what David did. Now God, because he's a good God, wouldn't allow David to stay there. In God's sovereign will, he, he providentially moved in David's life. It's been said the providence of God is when the hand of God is in the glove of human events. 
And, and so this is what happened in David's life. God moved uh, in such a way that those Philistines, when David was going so far as he was going to go to war against Israel itself, uh, lining up with the Philistines, God caused the hearts of the Philistine princes to say, no, 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 this guy can't go with us. And meanwhile, God allows uh, the Amalekites to come and to attack Ziklag. while David's away. And so David, he's turned away by the Philistines. They won't let him go to war with Israel. He goes back to Ziklag, finds it burning and in ruins. And God so often will do that to our plans, to our cities, to to the place where we want to make our life apart from him. He'll cause it to be consumed and attacked by the enemy. And there it is. It's It's a smoldering, heaping ash pile. And in that place, God wants to show David, what are you trusting in? Who are you trusting in? What are you looking to, David, for your satisfaction? And so David gets to that place and it has the desired effect. He falls down and he repents. He worships the Lord. And in worshiping the Lord, now he begins to take again the directions from God, not from his flesh, not from his fears. And so now God leads him back and God brings him into Hebron. And Hebron, being that place, literally means union, to be joined together. It means communion. And this is where David has come, into union with God, and into communion with God. And there in union with God, the tribe of Judah has come to David, and they've made him their king. Everything that David was called to, he didn't have to engineer it himself. He didn't have to fight and to acquire and to, and to work to get this. The moment he comes back into fellowship with God, and God leads him into Hebron, into that place of union, that communion with God, now everything that God promised in David's life begins to come to him. And so the tribe of Judah comes to him. They make him their king, but in the north, Ishbosheth has come to the throne by Abner. Abner was the general of Saul's army, you'll recall. And Abner is a guy who craves power. And Abner is unwilling to yield that power to David, even though he knows in his heart that David is called by God. He's going to admit that today in our text. Even though Abner knows all this, Abner Man, he's looking to be satisfied by power and the lust for position for himself. And so he sees an opportunity. And so he props up Ishbosheth. Say that three times fast. He props up Ishbosheth and he says, Look, you know, I'm going to make you Saul's son, the king. But really, Abner was the power behind the throne. Abner was pulling the strings. Ishbosheth really was just a puppet. And so Abner here doing this work and he's caused division. God has called David to be the king over all of Israel. And yet Abner is working here to create that division. And so now Judah is the only one of the 12 tribes that is aligned with David. And so there's this long war and the text tells us that the the house of David is growing stronger and stronger. The house of Saul is growing weaker and weaker. And this is always the result of dwelling in Hebron. Always the result of coming to the place where we say, listen, God, I want to be in fellowship with you. I want to be in communion with you. I want to be in relationship with you. But Abner, he ain't going down without a fight. And so we saw that last, last week or the week before last, in the last chapter. We saw that, you know, Abner pulling the strings, getting Ishbosheth there, and now you've got the tribes of Judah, the tribe of Judah going against the, the, the remaining tribes of Israel. 
Ishbosheth there, you know, propped up, and Abner having being the general of Saul's army, this guy craving power, he prompts this war, and in the war you've got David's men fighting against Saul's men, or as it were, Abner's men, and it's 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 kind of a rout. You got three hundred and sixty of of the house of Saul that that are destroyed, and you have twenty men that are killed of Abner's men. And the Holy Spirit makes this point. Hey, David grew stronger and stronger and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. But there's a problem. And we're going to see that problem unfold now. We, be, we continue in, chapter, or in verse 2. Sons were born to David in Hebron. His first, firstborn was Ammon by Ahinoman, the, the Jezreelitess. His second, uh, Chiliab, by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. The third, Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of Talmai, the king of Jeshur. You'll remember when David was in Ziklag and he went on these raiding parties to these different areas and he went in and he destroyed the Jeshurites and the text tells us he destroyed everybody. Well, evidently, in destroying everybody, he took the king, who he killed the king, but he took her daughter, apparently, as his own wife. And so Absalom would uh, be the, the, the offspring of... Uh, this marriage uh, that, that he would have with, with this gal. The fourth, verse 4, Adonijah, <clears throat> the son of Haggith. The fifth, Shepatiah, the son of uh, Abital. And the sixth, Ithrium, by David's wife, Egla. What an unfortunate name. Egla. Uh, these were born to David in Hebron. Six wives... And six sons, right? This spells the beginning of trouble for David. Let me just say this. No man needs six wives, all right? No woman needs six husbands, right? It works both ways. But but this is just problems for David. This is our first point. If you take a note, you can write it down. The human heart always craves more. The human heart always craves more. John D. Rockefeller, who is the richest man who's ever lived, he was a billionaire back in the late 1800s. Um, In the late 1800s. That's not modern-day equivalency. That's in the 1800s he was a billionaire. Which means in modern modern equivalences, he had more money than Bill Gates ever dreamed of. And he was asked the question, Hey, John Rockefeller, you have so much money, how much is enough? When's enough enough? His answer... A little more. Just a little more. And, and he's a religious guy. He's the son of a devout Baptist, you know, uh, following mother. Uh, his father was a charlatan. That's a whole other story. But he was raised to know the Lord. He was a strong Baptist believer. And yet in his heart, he was asked, how much money's enough? Just a little bit more. The human heart always craves more. And the Holy Spirit here, when he says this is what's going on with David, (coughs) excuse me, he's not just giving us a genealogy. He's showing us a chink in David's armor. He's showing us, hey, listen, there's, there's trouble ahead. See, the Lord had warned against what David is now doing in Deuteronomy 17. Put on the screen for you. The Lord speaking to the Israelites there as they're making the exodus. He says, you're about to enter the land 
the Lord your God is giving you, when you take it over and settle there, you may think, we should select a king to rule over us like the other nations around us. If this happens, be sure to select as king the man the Lord your God chooses. You must appoint a fellow Israelite. He may not be a foreigner. The king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself or send his people to Egypt to buy horses. For the Lord has told you, you must never return to Egypt. Here it is. The king must not take many wives for himself because they will turn his heart away from the Lord and he must not accumulate large amounts of wealth in silver and gold for himself. So God had warned against this. Billy Graham says there's three things you don't mess with. You don't mess with God's money, you don't mess with God's glory, and you don't mess with God's women, right? And so David didn't get the memo. Part of David's problem here is that things are going good. Have you ever realized in your life, have you ever experienced when things are going really good in your life, you have a tendency to kind of wander from God? It's not always true, it's not absolutely true, but it is a general truism that when things are going well, you can begin to depart, you can begin to sort of drift, you can begin to coast, you can begin to compromise, right? We see this pattern over and over with the nation of Israel, right? Nation of Israel, they're blessed, they fall into sin, God takes them to the woodshed, they repent, right? And then what happens? He blesses. And then they sin, and God takes them to the woodshed. You know, it's this recurring pattern in Israel's life over and over. And you've experienced the pattern in your life. You have those times, and you know, when are you closest to God? When he's taking you to the woodshed, because you've been outside of his will, and you're like, you know, help, Cecil, help. Like, God, I've ruined it again. Help me, God, help me. I'm so sorry, I'll never do it again. You know, because God lets you hit, hit something hard. He takes you to the woodshed in your life. Maybe, maybe today, maybe you, you're here following a woodshed moment in your life. Well, this is what happened with David. He's, he's in a place, man, things are going good. <clears throat> and so he's look, overlooking his compromise. He's becoming like just, this is a common practice, getting multiplying wives to yourself and having a harem and all. This would happen a lot with the eastern, you know, kingdoms. And so they're just behaving like everybody else. But God has said, look, no, no, I, I do not want my kings acting that way. And David is, is doing, you know, this thing. This is, this is the way that he's operating. This is the way that, 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 that he's going. And so the Holy Spirit here is taking note of David's weakness. As a matter of fact, when we get to 1 Chronicles 11, it's going to get worse. We're going to see that he's going to have more children by even more wives, Right? And, and he's, he's going to have like, you know, he has like 11 more children by multiple wives. And this will be at the heart of his greatest failure. This will be at the heart of David's greatest failure. Keep that in mind. See, David's adding wife upon wife, and he'll, he'll even go so far as to take another man's wife. As if he ain't got enough. Now hold that thought. Let's continue reading. Let's look at Abner, 2 Samuel 3, beginning in verse 6. It says, Now it was so, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. Notice it doesn't say Ishbosheth was strengthening his hold. Ishbosheth was supposedly the king, 
Abner's the power behind the throne. He's the one with ambition. He's the one who's engineering this whole thing. And so Abner is strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. Verse 7, and Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. And so Ishbosheth said to Abner, why have you gone in to my father's concubine? Okay, what's he saying? He says, hey, you hooked up with this, with this gal that was my father's wife. Now, if this is true, and I'm persuaded it is, people are split on this. Bible commentators are split on whether this is a false accusation or whether this is the truth. I'm of the mindset that it's true because it's preceded by the text telling us that Abner is strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. And so what, what would happen is, this is, this is high treason. Because it's very symbolic. If, if a guy dies, well, his, his wives were his wives. They're not to be touched by anybody. And if somebody goes, as he's accused of doing, and I think did do, and makes this gal then his wife, what he's doing, this is the equivalent, if I could be so blunt, as your dog marking its territory. Okay? This is Abner saying, hey, there's a new sheriff in town. So, so, you know, I'm really the guy who's in charge here. And so this accusation is made, and, and Ishbosheth is like, dude, what are you doing? Now, <coughs> watch his response. He says, why have you gone into my father's concubine? Verse 8, then Abner became very angry at the words of Ishbosheth. It's been said when you throw a rock in a pack of dogs, the one that yelps is the one that got hit. Okay? He got hit here. He's provoked. He's mad. And <clears throat> he's, and uh, Abner became very angry at the words of Ishbosheth, and he said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hand of David, and you charge me today with a fault concerning this woman? My mind, thou protests too much, right? And so what, what Abner's saying is, man, I've been nothing but loyal to you, and now you're going to make this accusation against me. Listen, Ishbosheth. Again, my opinion, but Ishbosheth here is just calling a spade a spade, just going, look, dude, here's the deal. I see right through with what you're doing. You're making a, pl- a play for power. You're, you're not content to be the general of the armies. You want to be captain over everything. <clears throat> so Abner continues in his bluster, and he says, verse 9, May God do, do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not do for David as the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah <clears throat> from Dan to Beersheba. Now, there's two things I want you to notice here. Number one, Abner reveals with his mouth, with his testimony, that he knew all along that David was called by God to be king. Which, which just bleeds right through and just reveals in naked reality here, Abner, from the very beginning, you were fighting against God and you were operating from a place of sinful ambition, place of sinful pride, because you knew God had called David. And yet you perpetuated <clears throat> this division. 
and you propped up Ishbosheth, and you engineered this whole thing because you had ambition. You weren't satisfied with the position that God had called you to. You wanted more. That's the first thing that's revealed here. Second thing revealed here is just how self-serving he is. He's like, oh, you know what? You're going to react like this. You know what? I'm going to use all my power, all my influence, because I see which way the tide is going. I'm going to be self-preserving and self-focused and all of these you know, aspects of I'm just going to look out to myself. This is what's going on here. This is the attitude of his heart. How quickly he, he, he runs away and says, you know what? Now I'm going to throw my support behind David. <clears throat> And he, speaking of Ishbosheth, would could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. And then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to David, saying, Whose is the land? Saying also, Make your covenant with me, and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. Again, self-serving. And David said, Good. I'll make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, <clears throat> you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. You remember back in 1 Samuel 18, David had made Michael his wife, Saul's daughter. This was David's first wife. And, and basically, Saul told him, hey, look, I, I want to make you, you know, my, my son-in-law. And so I'm going to give my daughter in marriage to you. But Saul's playing head games with, with David. He, at this point, is eyeing David jealously because he sees that God's hand is upon David. And he's already been told by the prophet Samuel, dude, you're out because you disobeyed God. So he's looking over his shoulder for who's the threat going to be. He realizes it's David. God's hand is upon him. So he begins fighting and plotting against David. And he did so with his daughter. He promised his daughter in marriage. And then the, the time drew near to where David was going to be married. And he gave his daughter away to somebody else. And then he starts pulling the same shenanigans again with Michael. Says, oh, here, you want, you want my daughter? And he tells, her, he tells David, you want her? You go out and you bring me the foreskins of a hundred Philistines. <laughs> You're like, wow, what a, what a thing to ask for, you know? You know? Yeah, how'd you like to be the guy counting those out? 33, 34, 30, you know? What's he doing here? He wants to see David killed is what he wants. Now David goes out and he doesn't bring him 100. He brings him 200, 198, 199. You know, David's like, you know, dude, I'm, I'm going to do this. And so Saul gave him his daughter Michael in marriage. So this was David's wife. And then what happened was when Saul ran David out of town, he took Michael and he gave her away to somebody else. Right? And so, so this, is, this is the issue here. And, and so what David is saying, <clears throat> he says, man, I'll make, I'll make a covenant with you, but uh, you got to bring Michael back to me. Uh, and so David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, give me my wife Michael, whom I betrothed to myself for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Paltiel, the son of Laish. Then her husband went along with her to Behurim, weeping behind her. And so Abner said to him, go, return. And he returned. How sad is that? I mean, it is sad, even though the way that it all went down, you, obviously this man loves his wife. And now this guy's taking her away and, and he's just weeping behind her. And this guy's so heartless. He's like, get out of here, you know. 
and just brokenhearted. It's just a horrible thing. And now Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel, saying, in time past, you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then, do it. See, Abner, he switches, and now he's Joe politician. He's going whichever way the wind blows. And so he's like, hey, make David, you know, your king. For the Lord has spoken of David. Sure, you'll, you'll, you'll proclaim what the Lord has said now. Abner, the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all their enemies. And Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. And then Abner also went to speak in the hearing of David in Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. And so Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron, And David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And then Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all of your, uh, over all that your heart desires. And so David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. First point is that the human heart always craves more. Here's the second point if you're taking notes. The human heart is confident that it deserves more. The human heart is confident that it deserves more. See, the picture here is that Abner has a lust for power. And what makes Abner tick is that he's confident that he deserves more. He's not satisfied with his place and position in life. I deserve more. And, and so he's not even content, certainly, to, tr- to serve the true king, David. No, he sees an opportunity for more. And so he props up Ishbosheth, comes behind him. Why? Because he wants more power. He wants to be the power behind the throne. Now he's not content just to be the power behind the throne. Here he is taking Saul's concubine, making this power play, doing all of this stuff. And now here it is that he's not even satisfied with that. Man, he's, he's going to say, oh yeah, you're going to come up against me? Fine, I'm going to go now to David. I'm going to go any way the wind blows. I'm going to do whatever I can do. Fine. By the way, interesting, when he tries to usurp Ishbosheth's power by sleeping with Saul's concubine, look at, look at her name there. It's Rizpah. That name Rizpah, interestingly, means hot coal. That's what it's, how it's translated. This chick was hot, right? Now, she belonged to another man. And what, what strikes me, I just write, you know, Proverbs 6.27 in the margin of my Bible. Here's what it says. I'll throw on the screen for you. It says, can a man scoop a flame into his lap and not have his clothes catch on fire? Can he walk on hot coals and not blister his feet? And so it is with the man who sleeps with another man's wife. He who embraces her will not go unpunished. And so here he is, man. He just is not content. Abner can't get no satisfaction, right? That's the story of his life. And, and, he's, and he's in bad company. It's interesting, you, you read in Isaiah, Isaiah shares an account in Isaiah 14 about somebody else who couldn't get any satisfaction. Talks about the fall of Lucifer, the fall of Satan, who was created as one of God's angels, who had a position and a station in heaven, to, to officiate worship of God Almighty. But listen to what Satan said. 
God declares to the prophet Isaiah, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, notice these five I will statements of Satan. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be, here it is, like the Most High. He wasn't satisfied in his station. He wasn't satisfied in his position. He wanted to be God. It's exactly what's going on with Abner. And the prophet finishes the thought, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Abner's just like Satan. I can't go no, get no satisfaction, but I try and I try and I try and I try. Now hold that thought. Now look at Joab, verse 22. So at that moment, Abner has come. David's like, hey, far out. You want to come? You want to give all the kingdoms to me? You want to make a covenant with me? Sure thing, Abner. Come on in. Now remember, who is Abner? Well, he killed Joab's brother in the last chapter, right? So Joab was away. He was on a raiding party when all this went down. He comes back. At that moment, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid And they brought much spoil with them, but Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. Now, when and it doesn't say, it doesn't specify that David strategically sent him away when he brought Abner in, but you can read that into this and go, yeah, maybe David knew exactly what he was doing. He didn't want Abner, or he didn't want Joab messing things up here. And so... He sent him away, and while he was away, he brings Abner, has this meeting. Verse 23, And when Joab and all of the troops that were with him had come, they told Joab, saying, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he sent him away, and he has gone in peace. Now you're Abner, or you're Joab at this point. What's going on in your heart? Exactly what we read. Then Joab came to the king, and he said, What have you done? Dude, are you on glue? Are you high? What are you sniffing, man? Are you, are you crazy to do this? It, the audacity to go to him and say this, and yet this is, this is what, what anger and rage and bitterness does to a human heart. And he's in this place. He's like, what on earth have you done? Look, Abner came to you. <clears throat> uh, why is it that, that you sent him away and he's already gone? Dude, you had him. You could have killed him. You had him in your power right there. You could have just been done with this. Surely you realize that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you. He didn't come with good intentions, David. He came to deceive you, to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you were doing. And when Joab had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner. See, now what's interesting here is it does not record that David responded to him at all. You know, Joab just, you know, vents and whether or not David responded and the Holy Spirit just didn't see fit to share that with us or whether David is just silent, just letting this guy spout off. And David just like, you know, whatever. But now Joab's still steaming and so he's gone from David's presence. Take note of that because he's going to start operating sneaky here. And so when Joab had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner who brought him back from the well of Sirah, but David did not know it. And now when Abner had returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside 
in the gate to speak with him privately and there stabbed him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Ashael, his brother. Interesting thing here. First of all, he does it without David knowing it. Secondly, he takes him aside in the gate. See, Hebron is a sanctuary city. Right, And so what it is, being a sanctuary city, is that somebody who comes there, like Abner, if there's some charge against him, he's promised a fair trial. And so what did he do? He took him aside in the gate, which is technically outside the city. So, so Joab knows exactly what he's doing. He's like, I'm going to take you outside the city where you don't have that protection. And he murders him. And we're going to read that uh, Abishai's brother, in verse 30, when we get to it next week, was in on the act. And they, the two of them together conspired to do that. Now, this brings us to our third point. First of all, the human heart always craves more. Secondly, the human heart is confident that it deserves more. Thirdly, what we see here is that the human heart kills those who take from it. You doubt that? Somebody cuts you off in traffic. You're, you, you go to a restaurant today after, you know, the, the service. You go over to Red Robin. You ever tried to get a parking over spot by Red Robin there? I mean, you got to sell a kidney to get a parking spot over there. And there you are, and you're waiting for your spot, and you've got your blinker on, and then all of a sudden, some joker, you know, in a sports car, races in and grabs it from you. you got murder in your heart, man. The human heart kills those that take from it. Right? And in the natural, we totally get this, don't we? We absolutely get this in the natural. Abner killed Joab's brother, Ashael. So it's like, man, uh, you know, you're dead, dude. Your time is marked. I'm, it's only a matter of time before I'm going to kill you. We totally understand that in the natural. But we're not supposed to operate in the natural. James said this. He said, human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Jesus Christ said, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, fault witness, blasphemies. And see, what's happening here is flat out murder. See, Abner killed Joab's brother, Ashael, in self-defense on the battlefield. That's totally different than what Joab does here. What does Joab do? Cold-blooded premeditated murder. Takes him aside, sticks a knife in his belly, brings him back on false pretenses. It is full-on cold-blooded murder. Here's the question for us today. In light of David, in light of what's going on with Abner, in light of what's going on with Joab, it's over and over and over again. Here's the question, the big idea, the take it home, the big E on the eye chart. Here it is. Where are you looking to find satisfaction? Maybe write that question down. Take a walk with it this week. Where are you looking to find satisfaction? Are you like David? You're looking to find satisfaction in relationships, in sex? Are you like Abner? You're looking to find satisfaction in power, in position? Are you like Joab today? You're looking to find satisfaction in revenge. Jesus said, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. And it all comes down to this, who or what are you worshiping? Who or what are you worshiping? See, the fact of the matter is, we are are all born worshipers. 
Every last one of us. The question isn't, will you worship? The question is, what will you worship? The question is, who will you worship? Because you will worship something. John Calvin said the human heart is an idol factory. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 4, we see that he's tempted by Satan. He's out in the wilderness. Satan's there tempting him. And Satan tried every angle, every trick in the book. He, he tempted him with the lust of the eyes. He tempted him with the lust of the flesh. He tempted him with the pride of life. And Jesus refuting every temptation with Scripture. And Jesus finally says there in Matthew chapter 4, he says, Listen, away from me, Satan. He says, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus brings it all back to worship. Who are you worshiping? Because idolatry is at the heart of every single sin that you and I will commit. And this temptation to worship idols, it doesn't go away once you're saved. I mean, it's there constantly. And, and, it, and it, the temptation just continues. As a matter of fact, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to finish up here. Just turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Pick it up in verse 1. Paul speaking to the Corinthians, he says this, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. The word means ignorant. Look, I don't want you to be ignorant that all of our fathers were under the clouds. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that flowed uh, that, that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Listen, here's what Paul says here. He says, take note, because before y'all, all y'all Corinthians, listen, before you guys, there was a slew of religious people before you that God blessed amazingly, and yet they died in the wilderness with God not pleased with them. Why? Verse 6, now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is a, a reference to the sexual immorality that took place when Moses was up on the mountain meeting with God, getting the Ten Commandments, and the people there, they decided to make a golden calf and worship the golden calf and engage in a sexual orgy and, and all. And this is the scene that Moses comes down to once he's been up on the mountain meeting with God you know what I'm gone just a little while and now how quickly you guys turn now you're worshiping an idol now you're engaged in this sexual promiscuity verse 8 nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did and in one day 23,000 fell nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents nor complain as some of them were also as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer now all of these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whose ends the ages have upon whom the ends of the ages have come therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall no temptation 
has overtaken you, except such as is common to man. But God is faithful and not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Therefore, and when you find a therefore in Scripture, you've got to find out what it's there for. Paul's just made a blanket statement, a bunch of points here, and he sums it all up with this thing. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Did you catch that? Because here's what happened. Paul is summing up all ungodly behavior with this warning, flee idolatry. Now, for some of you, you might hear that and it's confusing because you think, well, wait, getting drunk is sin and lying is sin and arguing against God is sin and sex before marriage is sin and adultery is sin and pornography is sin. Isn't idolatry just another sin? And this is what Paul did not want you and me to be ignorant of. He says, don't be unaware, don't be ignorant of what? Of the fact that idolatry is not just another sin. That idolatry is, in fact, the underlying root cause of all the sins. Studying the Ten Commandments, Martin Luther observed, he says, listen, the first two of the Ten Commandments refer to idolatry, and the remaining eight were things like, you know, sexual sin and, and stealing and lying and so on. And basically what he surmised was that if you never broke the first two, that you wouldn't break any of the others. See, because if you're a person who, who drinks too much, or if you're a person who does drugs, or if you're a person who's a liar, or you're violent, or whatever, the underlying issue isn't that you're an alcoholic. You might be an alcoholic, but the underlying issue isn't that you're an alcoholic. The underlying issue is that you're an idolater. Again, John Calvin said, the human heart is an idol factory. It's been said that the sin in your life is like fruit hanging off a bad tree. And a lot of times what we think is, well, I just got to get that fruit off, that bad fruit off, so that I can bear good fruit. And it doesn't work that way because ultimately the problem is the root. The problem is that root of idolatry. And the problem with idolatry is that it never satisfies. Think about Jesus with the woman at the well in in, in John chapter 4. Here he comes up to this gal, and, and he's going through, you know, Samaria there, and there's this Samaritan woman. It's the middle of the day, the hot of the day, and there's this one lonely woman there. And, and Jesus says to her, his disciples have gone off to get food. It's just the two of them, Jesus and this woman. And he says to this Samaritan woman, hey, <clears throat> would you get me some water? She's like, what are you, new? You're a Jew? You're talking to me, a Samaritan woman? You know, how, how is it that you're, you're asking, you know, me for a drink of water kind of thing? And, and they, they have this discourse. Jesus says this to her, put it on the screen. He says, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. He's talking about the water of the well. He started this conversation with this woman to get to the heart of where she was at. So he says, hey, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life. And the woman responds, she's like, well, I'll take some of that. She's like, give me some of the water. Jesus is like, I got the hook set, you know. So at this point, he's like, "Uh, go get your husband. She's like, I don't have any husband. And Jesus goes, you've answered well. You don't have a husband. He says, in truth, you've you've had five husbands. And the dude you're shacking up with right now is not your husband. 
And she's like, I perceive you are a prophet, you know. <laughs> she's like, whoa. Now she runs out and she tells everybody, come and meet a man who told me everything about my life. And Jesus hadn't told her everything about her life. He just put his finger on her idol. Jesus just said, look, you're, you're drawing from the wrong well. You're running from man to man to man, and you're just looking to satisfy that thirst that you have, and you're never going to find it. And where you're looking, you'll satisfy that thirst that you have in me. That's God's word to you today. Maybe you've come here today and you have been like David, that you're looking to, you know, multiply women to yourself. Or you're, you know, reverse it. You're a gal and you're looking to multiply men to yourself. Or maybe, you know, you're like Abner and your desire is power. And you're just looking for power to bring you that, that satisfaction. Whatever it is, the human heart is an idle factory. And if you look to be satisfied by anything other than Jesus Christ, you're going to leave thirsty. You're going to leave empty. See, whatever you hold in highest honor that's most important to you, the thing that you'll sacrifice for, your time, your energy, your money, your love, your devotion, that's your idol. It can be a person, it can be a pet, it can be a job, it can be a hobby, it can be a car, it can be a boat. Fill in the blank. Whatever it is, idolatry is enslavement to anything other than God. Now here's the fun part of the message, finding out what your idol is. I'll be real quick on this point, but here's the thing. You want to know what your idol is? Define your hell. What's hell to you? You know, some people have a poor hell. Some people have a fat hell. Some people have an unloved hell. Let's say you've got a poor hell. You know, for you, it's like, man, just the idea of, of being poor just drives me crazy. And so what do you do? You're, you, you, you identify some sort of a false savior that's going to save you from that hell. And so for you, the savior is your job. And I'm going to work my job. I'm going to work overtime at my job. I'm going to get a job at the side. I'm constantly going to be where I, I struggled with this early in my marriage. I was a fireman. You get overtime all the time. I'm like, I'll just work another day. I'll just work another day. I'll just work another day. I didn't run out of overtime opportunities. I, found I lost days of the week. I'm like, I, I can, I'm working seven days a week. So then what did I do? Well, I can, you know what? I can take a vacation day at the fire department and I can work as a paramedic for a private ambulance company on the side. I can work eight days a week, you know? Just constantly looking for this false savior God that was going to deliver me. And then I'm in this moment of crying out to God saying, I've made this train wreck of my finances and I've trusted in money, God. And now I'm in the place where I can't pay my bills. I've got a pile of bills sitting on the desk and I've got my hand in my head. And I'm like, God, I need you to speak to me. And I took my Bible and I don't recommend this, but I just, at this point, I'm like, I just need to hear from you. I flipped it open. I put my hand on a page. It was the prophet Isaiah talking about how we build idols and how we lavish out gold and silver from the bag and we build this idol and we set it up on the monument and there it is and he says and from that spot it can't move you can cry out to it all day long it'll do nothing to save you I'm like that's me and I had make, made working overtime and I'd made money and I'd made you know my job my, my functional savior and God's like I'm your savior 
So this is the way idolatry works. There's a hell and you don't want to be in it. And there's a savior and you need that savior to save you from whatever your own personal defined hell is. For this woman at the well, her hell was being alone. What was her functional savior? It was a dude. Man, I just need a man to make me right. Jesus is like, you're drinking from the wrong well. And some of you have come in here today with that thought. You're thinking, I have a drug problem. You're thinking, I have an alcohol problem. You're thinking, I have a lust problem. You're thinking, I have a porn addiction problem. You're thinking, I've got a marriage problem. And I would say you have an idol problem. And just picking the bad fruit off your tree is not going to help you. You need Jesus Christ. You need to turn to him. You need to cry out to him. And he needs to be enough. He needs to be enough for you. What well are you drinking from? You write this down. This is your takeaway. Take a walk with it this way, this week. What well are you drinking from to find satisfaction?